Welcome to this podcast looking at the force majeure implications of a potential second wave of COVID-19 infections and the resulting reimposition or tightening of lockdown measures. Many contracting parties have of course already been affected by force majeure events arising out of the pandemic and the associated restrictions. And as the focus starts to shift towards the gradual easing of lockdown measures, those parties who have claimed force majeure relief will be preparing to resume performance as soon as the impact of the force majeure event comes to an end, if, of course, they haven't already been able to do so. But unfortunately, as we all know, the easing of restrictions doesn't necessarily signal the end of the pandemic. And there has been much discussion of a possible second wave of COVID-19 cases, which would then require a re-imposition of restrictions. In this podcast, we will explore how contracting parties may need to adapt their approach, both in anticipation of, and if there actually is, any second wave force majeure situation. And we will share some practical tips of actions that can be taken. The focus of this session is on existing contracts, so dealing with force majeure situations under contracts that were entered into before the pandemic started. There are obviously also various issues to consider in relation to new contracts, both in relation to force majeure and more generally, and that will be the topic of a future session. My name is Julie Farley, and I'm a professional support lawyer in the London Corporate Division at Herbert Smith Freehills. And I am joined by Sarah Pollock, a partner in our energy and infrastructure team in London, and Emma Schaffsma, a partner in our London Disputes team, specialising in construction disputes. Sarah, can you start us off by outlining the types of COVID-19 related force majeure issues that contracting parties have been dealing with up until now? Of course. The first question is generally whether the pandemic and the related restrictions fall within the definition of force majeure. In the UK and many other jurisdictions, there is no statutory definition of force majeure. So we have been helping clients review contracts to ascertain whether the contractual force majeure mechanism has been triggered. Typically, the definition will require an event that is outside the party's reasonable control and may set out a list of categories of events that will, or sometimes won't, fall within the definition, either an exhaustive list or by way of example. If a party is satisfied that the pandemic or related restrictions are covered by the relevant definition, the next stage is to assess whether that event has affected the party's ability to perform the contract. Again, the relevant test will be set out in the contract, but it will typically require that the force majeure event has prevented or perhaps hindered or delayed performance of any or sometimes all the party's obligations under the contract and that the party could not have avoided the impact by taking reasonable steps. Assuming that those elements are satisfied, the next step is generally to draft a notice of force majeure and serve that on the counterparty requesting force majeure relief. Although the contract may require notice to be sent to an office address, local lockdown measures mean it is unlikely in reality that anyone will be there to receive it. So, as well as complying with the contractual requirements, we have seen parties taking practical steps to bring the notice to the attention of their counterparty, for example by sending an email copy to key personnel. 
Through all of this, it is important that parties think carefully about how they could mitigate the impact of the force majeure event. So we have been considering, with our clients, workarounds like resequencing work, adapting working arrangements to comply with social distancing requirements, looking for alternative sources of supply for key materials and so on. An important point to make here is that the extra expense of such actions is not generally going to be a sufficient reason not to do them. It's all part of the general rule that a force majeure regime is not engaged just because a contract becomes more expensive to perform. We've also been talking to our clients about preparation for the ending of force majeure relief when performance of the contract stops being affected by the force majeure event. Any contracting party which is currently benefiting from force majeure relief should be constantly monitoring the impact of the force majeure event on its ability to perform the contract so that it can be ready to resume performance as soon as that impact ceases. If it fails to do so, it risks being in breach of contracts for failure to perform once the period of force majeure relief ends. Thank you, Sarah. So with that position in mind, we move on to consider the implications of a potential second wave of infections. We're reading on a daily basis now about the easing of COVID-19 lockdown restrictions in many countries, including the UK, or at least plans to ease restrictions. But at the same time, we're hearing warnings from scientists and politicians about the possibility of a second wave of cases, which would then mean restrictions being reintroduced. Emma, what could a new wave of restrictions mean for contracting parties? Well, it will all depend on the situation affecting each individual contract. So, for example, in some cases, parties will be able to resume full contractual performance as restrictions are lifted, meaning that the initial period of force majeure ends. But then they may find that a later reimposition of restrictions affects their contractual performance, perhaps in a different manner and to a different extent than the first time round. In other cases, parties might not be able to resume performance before any new restrictions come into force, but they will nonetheless still be impacted by the second round of restrictions, or possibly both. Either way, the impacted party will have to assess whether they need to notify their counterparty of a new force majeure event or whether it can be considered a continuation of the initial force majeure event. And it's also possible that some contracts won't yet have been affected by force majeure, but one of the parties may find that the second round of restrictions affects their performance, so they will be looking for force majeure relief for the first time. But whatever position they find themselves in now, if there is a second round of restrictions, parties will need to consider what is actually affecting their performance of their contractual obligations, whether those events will fall within the definition of force majeure in their contract, and equally, whether the anticipated impact of the event will be covered by force majeure relief, particularly if it may fall short of actually preventing performance but rather may hinder or delay performance. It may well be that the event itself and the impact may not be the same as the first time round, so contracting parties should be looking at the wording of the contract afresh. So that was looking at whether the second wave and a new range of restrictions might fall within the definition of force majeure. The next point to note is that the failure to perform must be caused by the force majeure event in order to give rise to relief. 
As part of this, the affected party will need to show that it could not reasonably have protected against the impact that a second wave and any related restrictions might have on its performance under the contract. While certainly under English law, there's no general requirement that an event must be unforeseeable in order to give rise to a claim for force majeure relief, the more an event is foreseeable, the more it may be possible to prepare for the event and avoid it having an impact on contractual performance. So in light of the current warnings about the likelihood of a second wave, contracting parties must start considering now what steps they might reasonably be able to take once restrictions are being lifted to avoid any impact of a second wave of restrictions on their contractual performance. While the first wave of restrictions could be considered unforeseeable and unprecedented, taking the relevant party by surprise and meaning there were few options for it to explore to reduce the impact on its contract performance, it may well be that that party could well now have more options available to it to prepare and avoid any second wave affecting its performance. Of course, none of us have a crystal ball and everything is, of course, difficult to predict. But doing nothing to avoid the impact of a second wave could well lead to allegations that the cause of a party's inability to perform its contractual obligations if a second wave occurs is in fact its lack of preparation rather than the force majeure trigger. Indeed, this question of whether the impacting event was foreseeable and whether steps could have been taken to prevent it was considered in the recent case of 2EV versus Sony, which centred around a break-in and fire at one of Sony's warehouses during the widespread UK riots in 2011. The force majeure clause in the contract between Sony and 2EV provided that relief from liability for a failure to perform only applied if the failure was caused by circumstances beyond the reasonable control of the affected party. It was accepted that the riots themselves were not within the reasonable control of the parties. The judge noted that they were unprecedented and unforeseeable. But the judge looked at the more proximate cause, the actual break-in and the arson, and held on the facts that these were foreseeable and that Sony could have taken reasonable precautions against them. On that basis, the court held that Sony's failure to perform the contract was not due to circumstances beyond its reasonable control, and it did not therefore qualify for force majeure relief. Thanks, Emma. So what sort of things should parties be doing now? They should be considering what steps they can take to increase the resilience of their operations so that they are as well placed as possible to deal with any re-imposition of restrictions. And I think they should be planning for actions in three different periods. First, what they can do now, while initial restrictions are still in place or being slowly eased, In practice, this may be very little other than planning for the next two stages. Then, what can they do to make the most of any period of relaxation of the current restrictions? For example, will it be possible to stock up on key supplies, either from existing suppliers or alternatives? Is it possible to change a source supply that might be less vulnerable to a second wave of restrictions? Could staffing levels be ramped up to maximise operations during this period? And what about undertaking critical operational maintenance? Some measures will require agreement between themselves and their counterparty, and indeed it will come at additional cost, so early engagement on such options will be essential. And then what can they do as and when a second wave of restrictions occurs? For example, changing operating practices and adjusting working conditions to facilitate social distancing. 
Certainly, many companies will already have enhanced sanitation and distancing measures in place, so it will be important to ensure they are sufficiently agile to reimpose such measures should they be relaxed in the meantime. And those companies that do not yet have this should look to draw on others' experience to develop their own contingency plans quickly and effectively. And if a second wave does have an impact on performance, the affected party should obviously think about the notification requirements under the contract and its ongoing duty to mitigate that impact. Okay, understood. So as well as actually planning and implementing actions, presumably it's also important for a contracting party to keep records of the steps that it has taken in preparation for any second wave. Well, absolutely. If the situation does ultimately lead to a dispute, it will be very helpful for the affected party to have evidence in support of its position that it has taken the necessary steps to avoid a force majeure event having an impact on its performance and also to have evidence of the steps that it has taken to mitigate the effect of any impact that cannot be completely avoided. As well as documenting the steps that have been taken, it will also be important to document what other actions were considered but ultimately dismissed, as well as the reasons for not taking those actions. After all, it may be that in reality, there's limited range of options available to avoid the impact of a second wave or to mitigate the effects, but it's going to be important to show that you have actually considered them. Another important point when it comes to documentation is that the parties will want to think carefully about the documents that they create. While they'll need to have evidence of the steps taken, they do need to remember that any documents that are relevant to the situation may ultimately have to be disclosed in subsequent legal proceedings, whether they're helpful or not. Unless, of course, they're going to be protected by legal professional privilege. So they need to maximise the protection of privilege when seeking legal advice on their position or preparing for any litigation or arbitration that might be contemplated. Thank you, Emma. Sarah, could I ask you now whether there is any merit in a party having discussions with its key counterparties about how the contract could operate in the event of a new wave of restrictions? I realise it might not be possible in every case, but I just wonder whether it's worth considering in relation to certain key contracts. Yes, I think it probably is. It obviously depends upon the circumstances, and in particular the nature of the relationship that a contracting party has with its counterparty. But in some instances, for example long-term projects, I think it's definitely worth considering a collaborative approach. So both parties working together to agree alternative ways of performing the contract and what mitigation can be put in place. And of course, remember that relationships with suppliers is one of the factors that directors of UK companies should bear in mind when fulfilling their statutory duty to promote the success of the company. It's also worth pointing out at this stage that the Cabinet Office of the UK Government has recently published non-statutory guidance on responsible contractual behaviour in the performance and enforcement of contracts impacted by the COVID-19 emergency. The note is perhaps not as clear as it could be, and it raises a number of questions around its intended impact, the interrelation with contract terms, the sanctions for non-responsible behaviour, for example. But I think that a collaborative approach to dealing with force majeure would fall within the government's idea of what constitutes reasonable behaviour. But at the same time, parties should think carefully before waiving any contractual rights they might have in case the situation changes and they want to fall back on the protection offered by the contract. 
Thank you. And that leads on to my next question. We've mainly considered the situation so far from the perspective of a party which has been affected by a force majeure event and is therefore unable to perform its contractual obligations. But if we turn to the other side now, what action should a counterparty take if it receives a claim for force majeure relief? Well, the first point is that a party in that position should avoid an immediate response, if at all possible. Instead, it should take time to consider its options, referring, of course, to the relevant contractual provisions. It should request evidence of the alleged event and the impact that it is having on the performance of the contract, bearing in mind the obligation on the affected party to mitigate. If it can see other possible steps which have not been considered, but which might alleviate the situation, then it could consider asking its counterparty to explore those too. It should also consider how a period of force majeure relief will impact its own contractual obligations, both in terms of the affected contract and in terms of other related contracts. It may be that the inability of its counterparty to perform under one contract will mean that it itself is unable to perform another contract. Right, okay. And finally, Emma, what about terminating a contract which has been affected by force majeure? Mm, Yes, again, the starting point is going to be to consider the terms of the relevant contract. Contracts often include termination rights for prolonged force majeure, but you need to be certain the right to terminate has actually been triggered. Otherwise, the risk is that the purported termination will be challenged as a repudiatory breach leading to a claim for loss of bargain damage. So any party contemplating terminating for prolonged force majeure needs to gather strong contemporaneous evidence justifying its actions. I think that the question of whether a termination right has been triggered is going to be particularly contentious, where the relevant period of prolonged force majeure is reached around about the time at which the impact ends. For example, when government restrictions are eased, where the parties could be arguing about just a couple or just a few days. Some contracts will also allow for termination in the event of a cumulative number of days of being prevented from performing by either any number of different force majeure events during the life of a contract or by the same force majeure event. Where you have the latter, so multiple periods caused by the same force majeure event, The question is going to be whether a second wave of the pandemic and its restrictions, however they impact your contract, can be considered the same force majeure event as the initial force majeure event. So while the overarching trigger for both could be considered the COVID-19 pandemic, there could well be questions around the actual cause of a second period of force majeure relief and whether it is in fact due to the same force majeure event as initially claimed. And that puts a party wishing to terminate in a potentially difficult and risky position, as it needs to be sure that the separate periods of relief all count towards the termination trigger. Otherwise, as I mentioned earlier, it will be exposed to a claim that it has wrongfully terminated the contract and is rather itself in repudiatory breach of the contract. So any party in this position will need to carefully consider its options and take legal advice before exercising a right to terminate. Thank you, Emma. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Emma and Sarah, thank you very much for your time and your very helpful insights. 
It's clearly a testing time for contracting parties, but you've given some very practical tips there for dealing with the possibility of another round of restrictions. And thank you for joining us on our podcast. Please do visit the COVID-19 hub on our website, hsf.com, to access our COVID-19 briefings around the general themes of people, pressure points and governance and also to access further podcasts and webinars on the pandemic. Thank you and goodbye.